Today on the show, we're talking with author Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Simple Money Solutions podcast, where we focus on your money from a Canadian perspective. This podcast is produced weekly and released every Monday. Show notes for every episode can be found at livelifesimple.ca. Now let's get on with the show. Hey, everyone. I'm your host, Courtney, and joined with me today is my co-host, Trevor, and our very special guest, author Sean Cooper. He's been featured on CBC, CTV, BNN, Global TV, The Globe and Mail, and The Toronto Star. He's been in the United States on Good Morning America. He's also been on the the Dave Ramsey Show and has been on media outlets as far away as Britain in Australia. He bought his first house at age 27 for 425000 and has worked hard through determination and hard work. And three years later, he was mortgage-free. We welcome the author of Burn Your Mortgage, The Simple, Powerful Path to Financial Freedom for Canadians, Sean Cooper. Hi, Sean. Welcome. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks for the wonderful intro. It's great to be with you as well. So, Sean, I've read your book. Uh, I've read a lot of personal finance books, and this is a must-read for anybody thinking about getting into the real estate market or is a great source of inspiration for anybody who has a mortgage and trying to pay it off. Oh, thank you. I mean, I find that my book's great for anyone, whether they're uh, looking to buy a house or they already are a homeowner and looking to pay it off. And you don't really even have to own a house because the beginning of my book's basically dedicated to um, getting your finances in order, as well as frugal living and um, credit card debt, which is a big problem for a lot of Canadians. So it addresses all of those things. So, I mean, whether you're looking to buy a house or you already have one, uh, it benefits both people in those camps. No, I agree 100%. It is it is an all-round, well-rounded personal finance book for anybody who wants to improve their financial situation. So, Sean, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your hometown education, employment background? Sure. So I was born and raised in Toronto, Ontario. Uh, I know a lot of people come from probably some small town in Ontario to Toronto, but I was actually, I've lived here my entire life. So um, my education background, uh, I got a Bachelor of Commerce degree from Ryerson University uh, and through that, I was able to land a job in pension consulting um, where I've been working there since um, August 2010. And um, that really enabled me to save my down payment. Um, and um, on top of that, I was also during university and college, I was working several side jobs. So I worked at Ryerson University at the MBA department when I was a student there. And I was also started becoming a uh, freelance writer and I decided to concentrate on being a financial journalist during that time um, and I also worked part-time at a supermarket and um, when I eventually bought my house I became a landlord so let's just say I kept pretty busy. Well that's quite a spectrum of employment uh, the experience you've got. In, on your website I noticed that you also are a money coach. Well, what's that what's involved in, in being a money coach? Yes. So um, while it's great to write about money, um, I find it even more rewarding to get that out there and actually uh, be hands on with people and help them out with their finances because there's a lot of information on personal finance out there and um, it can just be a bit of overwhelming. And um, while you can read something that, um, you know, advises you on how to manage your money better, it really comes down to actually executing it. So, I mean, you can read all the personal self-help books in the world, but if you don't actually apply any of the stuff, then you're not going to be any better off. So I kind of see it the same way about money. Like being a money coach, you're basically a cheerleader and you help set financial goals with the client and then kind of help them, like guide them through the whole process. So um, it's something that I've been doing for about a year and I find it very rewarding and I hope to build that out and turn it into a business one day. So I, I don't want to make this too much about a, of a money coach show, but, but what do you see people like with a regular frequency? Like how do you sort of keep that moving that, that, that needle and helping people achieve their goals as, as a money coach? What sort of, can you give us an example of sort of how you apply that with, with a, a client? Sure. So the company that I'm working with now, we uh, basically sit down with the client for the very first meeting and then we set five financial goals that 
uh, they would like to achieve in the short term and long term. And then we meet once a month for one hour and uh, we do that for a year. And then after that, we kind of take a snapshot of their finances and see how they're doing and then decide if we want to keep meeting on a monthly basis or if we want to meet perhaps quarterly or, um, I mean, if the clients achieved all their goals, they might not need our support at all. They might just need uh, one-off questions. So it really depends on the client and their financial situation. Well, wow, that, that really sounds like a, a lot of people could make use of that kind of service to really, uh, it's kind of almost like a personal trainer in a way, isn't it? Exactly. It's like a personal trainer, but except for your money. Sean, moving on about with your book, um, it's related to the purchase of your home. So can you give us a description of your house, its age, size, and general location? Yes. So my house is located in the uh, east area of Toronto. And I wish I could say that I lived in a mansion, but it's not really a mansion. It's more like a three-bedroom bungalow with a finished basement apartment. And I actually decided to live in the basement of my house and rent out the upstairs because I'm just one person living in my house and the upstairs has three bedrooms and two bathrooms and I've got a busy life so I'm barely home as it is. So I did decide to uh, live in the basement and rent the upstairs because it just made sense from a financial perspective and we can talk about that later on. And my house is, uh, as I mentioned, a bungalow and it was, it was uh, built in the 1960s so um, it's a pretty solid house. Um, I kind of uh, wanted an older house because I've heard some of the newer houses aren't that great uh, construction uh, quality. Anybody who had any doubts of being able to uh, buy a house and pay it off in a, in a really short period of time, you've picked a, the, one of the most expensive markets in, in the country to do it in so it, it's what your, your philosophies have been fully tested I, I would say. The, the reason I was able to pay off my house in three years' time is because I didn't spend too much on a house. A lot of people see that, oh, the banks approved me to spend you know, $800,000 on a house, so they go out and spend 800000 or they get into a bidding war and spend even more. Um, I had a purchase price in mind, and I was actually approved by the bank to spend $500,000, and I decided to spend less, four twenty-five. and by not stretching myself financially, I was able to pay off my mortgage in a very quick amount of time. I think a lot of people lose sight of that the bank is in the business of making money, and they want you to use as much as possible. I think it's a, a misnomer a lot of people have. As your banker's not going to tell you, oh, you're spending too much on your house. Um, it's your own decision. You need to basically crunch the numbers and decide, you know, am I spending over 50% of my income on housing? Am I going to be house rich, cash poor? Um, it's really your own personal responsibility to look at that. So, Sean, for someone who is thinking about getting into the housing market and not familiar with the home buying basics, can you tell us about some of the pros and cons of buying a home? Definitely. So I would say the one of the biggest pros of buying a home is the forced, uh, forced savings of home ownership. So when you purchase a home and you get out a mortgage, you basically have to continue paying the mortgage payments or the bank's going to take your house away from you. So I think that's a pretty good incentive to keep paying your mortgage because you don't want to come home one day and have a foreclosure notice um, on your door. Now, some people like to say, you know, oh, um, in cities like Toronto or Vancouver, housing is overvalued and it makes more sense to rent than own. But the thing is, um, while you can do quite well by renting and investing, um, uh, when it comes to the investing component, um, you could decide, oh, I'd rather spend some of my money on um, you know, a nice trip or a nice coat and just skip investing. There aren't really any immediate consequences, but like I mentioned, if you skip your mortgage payment, uh, the bank's going to take your house away pretty quickly. So, uh, And to tie that back to like RSPs, um, you know, when people have defined benefit pension plans, they don't really have a choice but to contribute. But with RSPs, less than a quarter of Canadians are contributing anything at all. So um, just so it goes to show when people have choice, they usually decide to, I guess, indulge in the nice things in life and don't necessarily take savings as seriously because it's so long away, like retirement or paying off your house. Um, and a few other things that I like about home ownership is that it's, as I say, good debt most of the time. So um, if you end up stretching yourself financially, then um, I don't think it's necessarily good debt, but you're investing in an appreciating asset. Um, houses generally go up in value, so that's why I consider it good debt. And also a house can be a source of income. Uh, for example, I 
rent out my house to tenants. So I'm able to uh, bring in income and um, actually write off a portion of that mortgage interest and all the expenses related to my house. Um, generally, you can't do that with your principal residence, but if you rent it out, then you can rent then you can write off some of the expenses and carrying costs of home ownership. And also, the government um, encourages people to own houses, so of course they offer tax credits, and uh, your principal residence is um, tax sheltered. So when you go to sell it, in most cases, you don't have to pay any capital gains. So for all those reasons, there, um, I'm a big fan of home ownership. You know, I, I agree with your uh, the concept of of forced savings. It's a great tool to build personal wealth. I personally, I know I would not have the self-discipline to be a renter and invest. That forced savings of paying back that mortgage, that is the biggest selling point of owning a home as far as I'm concerned. Sean, you touched on good debt, but from your book, this was a this a big topic, good debt versus not so good debt. Can you give us any further insight into this? Sure. So my definition of good debt is any money that you borrow for something that is likely to increase your net worth. For example, borrowing money to purchase a home or for post-secondary education or even investing. Now, bad debt is uh, what I consider any money borrowed for something that's likely to go down in value, such as a car loan um, or buying clothing, or is used up immediately, such as borrowing money to go on a vacation. Um, Now, um, the lines kind of seem to be blurred between good debt and bad debt. So, no, it definitely does. It ties into the concept of good debt gone bad. Describe what that means, and can you give us an example? Sure. So, as I was mentioning earlier, um, home ownership, while I support it, um, I don't think it's necessarily a good idea to go out and spend as much money as you can on a home um, because you can end up being house rich and cash poor with no money to save, let alone have fun. So, that's really what I think um, that uh, when good debt can turn Bad. Unfortunately, I haven't really heard a story about bad debt um, going good, but if anyone has, uh, let me know. Yeah, they don't exist, I can assure you. Is there a formula or ratio of just how much good debt versus bad debt someone should have? And is there a ratio for total debt? Well, I mean, um, I'm not sure if there's a, a ratio for good debt or bad debt, but in terms of buying a house, there are two ratios that lenders use to stress test you. There's the gross debt service ratio and the total debt service ratio. Now with the GDS ratio, it looks at the uh, percentage of your gross monthly income needed to cover your house, your monthly housing costs. So for example, the mortgage payment, property taxes, heating, and 50% of your maintenance fees if you own a condo or townhouse. Um, so it basically looks at your percentage and um, as I mentioned, you don't want to stress yourself too much and um, end up spending over 50% of your income on that because um, then you're not going to have any money left to save. Um, and the second formula, the TDS formula, looks at all your monthly housing costs related to your uh, gross monthly income, but it also adds in monthly debt payments. So, for example, if you have a car loan, credit card debt, line of credit, or student loan, as many people have, um, those things get added into the formula. And basically, the more debt you have, the less house that you can buy. So that's really an incentive to get your debt paid off as soon as possible. And in my book, I recommend aiming for a TDS ratio of 37% or below in affordable housing markets, such as Winnipeg or Saskatoon. But if you're in an expensive housing market like Toronto or Vancouver, um, I say that um, you could go up to 42%. Um, the bank lets you go up to 44% depending on your credit score if it's above 680. But um, I really think it's a good idea to not stretch yourself too much and um, try to stay below 42%. I know uh, some people that have a workaround to that debt ratio is they'll take all their existing loans and roll them into their, their mortgage, their their new mortgage they're getting. And that, in essence, spreads their their debt over the 25 years or however long their mortgage is and, and reduces their monthly payments, which is a, a, a slippery slope to get to get on. I, 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 I think uh, people play with that debt ratio in, in a bad way quite often. I agree completely. And a lot of people are 
um, of the assumption, like when they're taking out home equity line of credits and borrowing equity from their house, they're assuming that house prices will, will go up indefinitely. And I definitely think that that's uh, you know, a scary assumption to make. So um, I guess with the younger generation, we've only ever known low interest rates and home prices rising. But you know, to think that home prices um, will go up for the next 25 years and interest rates will stay low, I think is a pretty risky um, bet to make. Well, one of the things with a real estate market is that I've heard, I've read that it's a long cycle compared to other uh, investment cycles. And like you say, the cycle might be 25 years long. So when people get into it, they've never seen the downturn that, that say I saw in the early 1990s, where actually real estate prices eroded and went, went down. So it, when you get into these long investment cycles, people get blind to uh, the fact that it's a cycle. Yes, and home prices can stay down for many years. So um, you just have to understand the risks that come with home ownership. And um, as I mentioned, uh, I mean, if you're buying a house, you should be willing to be in that house for at least five or 10 years. If you're looking to make a quick buck and sell the house in a couple of years, um, I think you're probably better off uh, renting uh, and investing instead. Well, the transaction costs of getting in and out of a, a piece of real estate is, is so onerous. It's uh, I don't know how you make money do, doing that, but people getting, you know, moving every five years, I, I can't imagine you'd, your return on investment would be very high. I agree completely. Closing costs are generally 1.5% to 4% of the purchase price. So if you're buying and selling every two, three years, I mean, uh, you're losing a lot of your profits to that. Sean, we've touched on this a little bit, but can you explain to our listeners the concept of how real estate is a leverage investment and how this is different from other types of investments? So sure. Uh, leverage means that it's basically a fancy way of saying that you're um, using borrowed money to purchase something. So basically when you buy a house, most people can't afford to pay for it in cash. So they have to use some of the bank's money to do that. So um, for example, the minimum down payment in Canada for homes under $500,000 is 5%. So you're basically putting in 5% of the home's purchase price and the bank is paying for 95% of the home's uh, purchase price. Now, le leverage is great if home prices go up. You can get, it basically magnifies your gains. Um, you know, if home prices, I go through an example in the book. Okay, so if your home's value went up um, by 60%, let's say that you bought a property for $250,000 and then later you sold it for $400,000. So even though the home's value only went up by 60%, uh, because you only put a smaller down payment down, um, you'd actually get a 500% return on your initial investment. So that's the good side of leverage. But the bad side of leverage is, let's say you only put 5% down and your home's uh, value declined by 10%, your mortgage could actually be underwater, meaning that you owe more on your mortgage than your property is worth. So um, it's just important to understand that leverage is a double-edged sword. And while it can help um, you make more money, it can also um, wipe out your equities. So it's just uh, important to understand the good and the bad of leverage. And I know in the uh, <clears throat> 2008 meltdown in the United States, a lot of people were just walking away from houses for that very reason. I mean, when you're just leaving the keys on the counter and walking away, I mean, that, that's a, a horrible outcome. Yeah, exactly. I don't think any homeowner plans to do that. Um, unfortunately, in Canada, if you try to do something like that in most provinces, you'll ruin your credit score. But I guess in the U.S., um, people were just so far underwater that they didn't really care about their credit score at that point in time. There's actually a movie called The Big Short, and there's a book as well. And it really outlines the, the, how horrible an environment that was. It was just, I, I, it's, it's worth watching to just if you're in the housing market, you're thinking about getting into it, it's just an eye opener. We really loved your four simple ways to control your credit card spending. Can you describe for our listeners uh, these four ways and maybe provide examples? Sure. So uh, my first uh, way to control your credit card spending is to leave your credit card at home. Um, if you find that every time you go out, you spend something on your credit card, um, only bring it with you when you plan to make a purchase. So for me personally, that's worked great. I mean, um, unless I'm planning to go out and uh, buy clothing, then I'll just leave my credit card at home and only have a minimal amount of cash. So even if I see something that I want to purchase, um, 
then I won't have the, my credit card to go and swipe it. And that kind of ties into the second point. Um, with credit cards, it's easier than ever to spend today. Uh, with features like PayPass, um, you can just tap your card and spend $50 in an instant without even thinking about it. So my second tip is to take a cooling off period when it comes time to making a major purchase. So for example, if you see a big screen TV on sale, um, then uh, try to take a 48-hour cooling off period. Maybe go home and think, sleep on it and crunch numbers and see if you really want to spend that amount of money. You might end up having second thoughts and decide that you really don't need that big screen TV. So um, just kind of, uh, you know, don't feel like you have to take out your credit card then and there. Um, take some time to actually think about the purchase before you make it. And my third tip is to avoid spending triggers. Now, if you find every time that you go to the mall, you uh, you come out with a shopping bag full of stuff that you didn't intend to buy, then try to avoid going to the mall. Instead, go and get some exercise, go for a walk, or go to the gym instead. Um, just try to avoid the mall because it's just you just end up going to you're going to end up spending money that you weren't intending to spend. And the fourth tip is to, um, if you're having problems controlling your credit card spending, consider switching to cash only. There have been studies that have shown that um, when we spend credit when we use our credit cards, we spend to spend up to 18% more. And the reason for that is because the pain of spending is gone. It all comes down to behavior and psychology. And with mobile payment and Apple Pay and stuff like that just coming to Canada recently, it really worries me because um, people may go into their wallet maybe five, six times a day, but people look at their smartphone an average of 110 times a day. So um, it makes it even more tempting to spend. So I really think we need to, um, you know, do things to keep our spending in check because I'm sure the bank and other people will come out with uh, even easier ways to spend. Maybe we can, I don't know, scan our retina to buy stuff in the next five, ten years. I don't know. But, you know, it seems with each passing year, it's easier to part with our cash. Yeah, it's getting harder and harder to say I, I don't have the ability to pay for this right now. So, you know, your, your, your tip about leaving your credit card at home, I have a, a horrible weakness for electronic gadgets. And I was at a Best Buy recently, and I had my credit card with me, and I left it in my car. So, you know, I, I didn't leave it at home, but I left it in my car based on the tip I got out of your book. And I believe it stopped me from spending money just by having it in my car instead of in my wallet. So I, I've already employed that tip, and it worked for me. So, Sean, we are big fans of living a frugal lifestyle with its so many benefits. Can you share some of your frugal life hacks that have worked really well for you? Yes, as, as I was mentioning earlier, it's easier than ever to spend money these days, um, and mobile payment certainly hasn't helped. So um, in a section of my book, I actually talk about 25 ways to save big. And um, first of all, I would say um, in terms of your expenses, you should look at the big spending categories, so transportation and groceries. So in terms of tips on saving on groceries, um, I try to buy in bulk buy in season and buy and sale. So not only does that save time, it also saves money. So, you know, it's probably not a good idea to go out in the middle of winter and buy cherries because it's going to cost you a fortune. So just try to buy stuff um, that's in season. So maybe buy apples uh, during winter time and then uh, save the, the cherries and grapes for um, the summertime when the prices are more reasonable. And another thing is um, a lot of people just... Um, spend money on monthly expenses and don't really give it a second thought. So cable is, is something that many people have, but is it really worth all the money that you're spending? For example, if you're only watching TV for 30 minutes or an hour a night, why should you be spending over $100 a month on cable? There are plenty of free alternatives. For example, um, you can get a high-definition antenna put up on your house, and um, if, depending on where you live, you could get over 20 channels. I, I know you can get that in Toronto. And also there are streaming services like Netflix. And when you're paying like $10 a month, it's certainly a lot less expensive than paying $150 a month in cable fees. Um, and I would also say um, something that um, I guess bothers me is people, uh, many people just pay bank fees without thinking about it at all. 
Um, you know, that 10 or $15 charge uh, a month may not seem like a lot, but it really adds up over time. So um, make sure that you're getting good value for your bank fees. I'm not, um, I'm not saying everyone should not pay bank fees, but um, you know, if you're not getting any perks like uh, free uh, e-transfers or anything like that, you might think about uh, switching your banking to like no fee banking. Um, there are plenty of good options out there like Tangerine or PC Financial. Yeah, we, uh, I've been with PC Financial for 20 years now. And I, the mo- I mean, I've stopped, I've stopped keeping track of the money I've saved f- from that. But your, uh, your piece on cord cutting is what we call discontinuing your additional cable TV. If you step into that world, it's almost like a cult of the uh, cord cutting. The, what there is to watch without cable TV, uh, if you become, uh, I don't know, uh, resourceful enough, th- there's almost more out there to watch. When you have cable, you sort of have blinders on, and all you do is think of what's on cable. But when you don't have that, you broaden your horizon, and the money to save, like you said, it's it's enormous. I definitely think cable is an outdated business model. I mean, uh, people uh, work all different kinds of shifts, and saying that you have to watch a show at a certain time, and also having to pay to watch all those advertisements. Um, I just would never buy cable again. Oh, I, I'm with you there. I think... 20 years from now, people are going to look back and they won't believe that we actually signed up for a service like that. It's going to seem just insane. Sean, in your book, you talk about how to save money on your phone bill and you specifically mention Magic Jacko. What is this and how does it work? Well, um, if you're looking to save money um, on your home phone, uh, many people don't have that. But um, if you're looking to save money on your phone, um, Magic Jacko is a service where you can spend about $35 a year and um, you can get a local phone number and unlimited long-distance calling within Canada and to the U.S. Um, to use Ma- Magic Jack Go, all you need is a computer and high-speed internet. And you can actually take your current phone number with you. Um, and it's as simple as downloading the Magic uh, Jack app and um, using Wi-Fi as well. So what I basically do is um, I use my cell phone and buy about 100 minutes a year and I use that when I'm on the go and I have unlimited texting with that and then when I'm at home and I want to have longer conversations that's when I use the Magic Jack Go service so I kind of use my cell phone and my home phone in tandem that way and I find that it's saved me a ton of money I mean I know people whose mobile phone bills are like 60 70 dollars a month I believe the average Canadians is like 65 dollars a month so um, Magic Jack has definitely helped me save a ton of money over the years yeah I had no idea this actually ever existed until I read your book and I I went to their website read about it and I think it's phenomenal I'm definitely gonna do this my uh, phone service contract ends in March, and I'm, I'm doing this. We're going to leave sh- links to this in the show notes because I think this is a remarkable service. It's a great service. I would definitely check it out. In your book, you talk about the importance of goal setting. How big of a role was goal setting in achieving mortgage freedom? It, was a, it played a huge role. I mean, if I didn't set the goal of purchasing a house and paying it off, as quickly as possible in three years time in my case um, I wouldn't have done it I mean um, goal setting was basically what enabled me to make a plan and actually execute it if I said you know I want to pay my house off you know uh, I don't know in the future sometime then probably wouldn't have gotten done in in three years Um, by setting myself an aggressive goal like that it made me motivated to get up every day and get one step closer to mortgage freedom and, I mean, I'm not the only one that sets goals. Um, as I mentioned in my book, Canadian rapper Drake set himself the goal of earning $25 million by the time that he reached age 25. So successful, many successful people set goals for themselves, whether it's to do with their finances or their careers. So I go through an example of my book, and I have a worksheet in there t- that talks about SMART goal setting. And SMART is an acronym for Specific, Measurable, Attainable, uh, relevant and time bound. So rather than saying, you know, I want to own a house one day, you can say, I want to own a three bedroom house in the suburbs of Toronto. And I'll do that by saving a down payment of $60,000 in three years' time. So by actually setting yourself a specific goal, you can figure out exactly how much money you have to save from each paycheck and you can automate those savings so that. Um, your goal becomes uh, that much easier to achieve. 
I love that smart concept, that acronym. I mean, without that, it's just a dream or a wish list, really. Exactly. Sean, can you give our listeners an example of a really challenging goal you set for yourself and maybe talk about some of the setbacks you, you had to overcome in order to achieve this goal? Definitely. So for me, a lot of people would think that I'm fortunate to own a house and I definitely consider myself fortunate because before I owned my house, as I talk about in the book, I was looking for a house for over two years and I had made two failed offers on houses and there are plenty of other houses that I saw that I wanted to purchase. But when the houses got over 10 offers, I pretty much threw in the towel. I didn't want to get into a bidding war and end up spending too much money on my house. So um, I definitely, in terms of buying a house, um, the journey there wasn't easy and uh, I wanted to own a house when I was like 24, 25, but I wasn't able to do that because the housing market was so competitive. But I set myself the goal of uh, seeing at least five houses per week and going out with my real estate agent every week. And lo and behold, I found just when I was about to um, throw in the towel, I found my current house that I live in. And um, luckily, I was able to make a bully offer on the house, which basically means that you make an offer ahead of time before the house is listed and the seller ended up accepting it. So because I was persistent and I didn't give up on my dream of home ownership, I was able to eventually buy a house and call myself a homeowner. How does that work where you, you submit an offer before it's listed? I've never actually heard of that. Yeah, so it's, it's basically known as a bully offer and a lot of the selling strategies for houses these days is that um, they hold back offers. So um, they basically say that, you know, this listing is going to come out in a week's time and they purposely list it low and then they get lots of traffic through the house and many agents visit it, maybe like 50 or 100 agents and then a bidding war happens. But um, that's basically what happened. They were going to list the house in a week's time, but um, let's say the homeowner was going to list it for $400,000. Well, I offered four twenty-five, dollars and basically he didn't know whether you know his house was going to sell more for a bidding war, and I was, I was offering him over his asking price. So um, he was actually what I consider a motivated seller because he had already moved to Calgary, Alberta from Toronto, Ontario. So he just really wanted to get rid of his house um, at that point in time. So I was fortunate to, uh, ha like, under the right cir circumstances, and I was able to get my house without being involved in a bidding war. And I guess the other incentive for the uh, the seller is they don't have to deal with uh, all the showings and all that stuff. Exactly. Um, he got the money for his house, and uh, I was able to um, I was able to move into the house in thirty days. So he got a quick close, and uh, he caught his money. So everything worked out at the end of the day. One of the topics you cover in your book is budgeting. Can you tell us about your philosophy on budgeting? Sure. Um, I'm a big fan of budgets. Um, some personal finance experts out there don't think that they're worthwhile, but I just disagree with that. Um, a budget basically shows you how much money you have coming in and going out, and it gives you the big picture of your finances. Um, a budget can be an eye-opening experience. You can see exactly where you're spending your money and if you're overspending in certain categories. And it also helps you achieve your financial goals. Um, but while budgeting is good on its own, you also need to track your spending. And that's really the part where um, I find people don't enjoy um, budgeting. They don't want to keep track of every single penny that they're spending. They just find it a complete nuisance. But the good thing is with um, all the tools out there, it's easier than ever to track your spending. So there are things like Mint and um, your credit card even categorizes your spending for you. And there are also banking apps out there like BMO Money Logic and RBC uh, My Finance Tracker that help you keep track of your spending. And in terms of tracking your spending, um, I'm not a fan of tracking every single penny that you spend because I don't really see the value in that. I say that you're better off focusing on the two or three spending categories you're likely to overspend on. So whether it's clothing, electronics, or restaurants and entertainment, um, just kind of keep an eye on those things and add up all the money you're spending. And you know, if you realize that you're spending $200 a month on 
electronics then you know that can kind of make you second guess how you're spending your money and you might decide to kind of cut back on that and then you'll have more money to save towards a house or pay down your mortgage sooner i, I like that concept of the way of streamlining it where you just focus on the areas you know you're going to have issues is there a tool that you use like a, a piece of software that you that's worked for you or is there ones that you've used in the past that haven't worked that well um, well, I'm a big fan of, of Mint. I mean, um, I like tools that make it as easy as possible because if it's going to be an onerous process, then people aren't likely to um, follow through and, and track their spending. But me personally, I just use something as simple as Excel spreadsheet. But the thing is, you know, whatever works for you, whatever gets you to track your spending um, is, is great. So, you know, try out the different things, whether it's Mint or um, uh, your credit card or banking apps and see what works for you and just uh, kind of get into a regular routine of adding up all your spending at the end of the month and reviewing it and uh, you know it can definitely help uh, you know save money at the end of the day. No, I agree. I'm, we're big fans of budgets on, on our show. We talk about it a lot. In your book you talk about the concept of lifestyle inflation. What is this and how can we avoid it? Sure. So lifestyle inflation is a term used to describe how our personal spending grows throughout our lives. So as you're promoted in your career and your salary increases, typically so does your spending. So um, the, you're probably wondering, why do you feel compelled to spend more? And it's often because of the people that surround us. We feel pr pressure to keep up with the Joneses, as they like to say. So it's our family, friends and colleagues and neighbors. Um, they basically some they basically influence us to as I like to call upsize our lifestyle and we end up spending more on by buying fancier cars, moving to a bigger house, or going on more expensive vacations and dining out at um, at fancier restaurants. Now, how do you avoid lifestyle inflation? I think the best way to do that is by having a budget and making smart financial decisions. And basically not comparing yourself constantly to others because, um, you know, while somebody might have a nice house, um, looks can be deceiving. They might have a huge mortgage and, you know, they're not going to have their house paid off till 65 years old or 70 years old. So, you know, um, you don't have the whole financial picture just because somebody looks like that they're living a nice lifestyle. Um, and it's also about, you know, asking yourself the important questions. I mean, do you really need to go out and buy a new car every three years? Do you need to have a television in every single room? And do you really need to go on um, an exotic vacation every year? So it's about, you know, looking at the big picture of your finances and, you know, making some important uh, spending decisions um, uh, that will really impact your life and your finances for the years to come. I know for me... Lifestyle inflation was, was really impacting me when it was the people I was surrounding myself with that were motivating me to spend money I, I shouldn't be spending. And there's an expression that the, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I, I turned out when I look back, I was spending time with people who really like to spend a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, I, I listened to Mark Cuban, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, and he's on Shark Tank. He basically said his goal was to retire at age 35, and he was going to keep living like a student all the way till he reached that goal. So, I mean, it depends on, I guess, what your goals are in life, but um, just kind of, you know, keep an eye on your spending. You may not think that your spending is going up, but, you know, um, you it can easily go up without you even realizing it. In your book, you talk about cycling to work. Is this something you do? And can you share an interesting story with our listeners about your cycling experience? Sure. So I've been commuting on my bike pretty much every day during the week since um, 2004. So gosh, I've been doing it like uh, 13 years now. So it's kind of like second nature. So um, for most families, transportation is their second highest household expense after mortgage or rent. So it's really a great place to look at saving money. So I estimate that I save about $5,000 a year by cycling instead of driving. And with this extra money, I was able to save my down payment sooner and pay off my mortgage a lot faster. Um, and actually, uh, cycling came into my decision when it um, came to buy my house. I wanted to live somewhere where it was cycling distance from my work. Um, if my house was, you know, uh, if it took two hours to cycle to work, that wasn't practical and wasn't going to do that. So that played a big role in where I ended up moving. 
And I think for a lot of people, safety is a major concern. But if you're living in a city like Toronto, where there's actual bike infrastructure, and you take the necessary precautions, like making yourself more visible by wearing reflective uh, clothing and also having proper bike lights, it can make it um, a lot safer, safer and you don't have to worry about, um, you know, getting hurt while you're uh, cycling. So do you, do you cycle in the winter as well? Um, no, I don't. Um, but actually, it's really mild outside today. So uh, it, it's actually been pretty nice weather lately. So I have been cycling. But uh, um, in, in wintertime, when there's not any snow outside and the temperature is decent, I will still cycle. But um, when there's snow on the ground, it's just too dangerous to cycle outside and it will ruin my bike. But I do know people that still cycle during the wintertime. And if that's something you want to do, I would encourage you to get a bike just for winter time because if you're taking your nice brand new $500 or $1,000 bike out in the winter time, it's going to get wrecked with all the snow and, and the salt. So if you want to bike during winter time, just kind of get like a beater bike just for the winter time um, because you don't want to ruin your bike by just uh, cycling for three or four months during winter. That's a really good tip, actually. You know, when I read that part in your book, I started to really feel bad about myself because I, I only live five kilometers from work. So clearly that's biking distance. But I, I work in an office and I, I didn't want to get there and be all sweaty. And how do you sort of overcome that aspect of it? Well, some offices actually have showers and other places like that. But um, you can always leave a change of clothes at work or just kind of... Um, um, I mean, it depends on where you work. Like, if you have to dress up in a full suit, then cycling to work um, might not be practical. But as I mentioned, um, you know, if you have a change of clothes at work that you can kind of, um, you know, get into once you get into work, then that's fine. But to be honest, if I worked at a bank where I had to dress up in a suit, I might not uh, cycle to work. So it really depends on, you know, how dressy your office is. I mean, I wish that more offices did things to encourage people to cycle in by like installing showers and like having, you know, secure bike parking. That would be great because, uh, you know, it would get more cars off the road and uh, help uh, lower pollution and uh, solve gridlock, which is a big problem in cities like Toronto. So my office doesn't have a very uh, high dress code. There is a shower there and it is five kilometers away. I can't come up with a reason why I don't bike to work, but I know I should. And you're just hearing that somebody else doing it. It's kind of motivated me that I, I needed to look at it. And I agree there's a lot of savings. Plus there's the exercise benefit too. Exactly. And you know, you just try it out maybe once or twice a week and see how it is. You don't have to go and cycle like every single day. That's what, you know, that's what I kind of did. Just tried it like once a week. And then when I got into it, I'm like, why am I wasting my money driving or taking transit? So, you know, then I kind of got hooked and it's a good way to save uh, time and money as well. I mean, you're cycling like you're basically getting to work and um, you're getting exercise at the same time. So a lot of people, you know, they sit in their car or take transit and then, you know, they're, uh, that, that's all that time spent and then, you know, they don't have time to go to the gym after. So I'm kind of killing two birds with one stone. I'm getting my exercise and I'm getting from point A to point B at the same time. In your book, you ask the question many potential home buyers may ask themselves, should you buy now or later? How does this relate to the risk of getting priced out of the market? Yeah, so this definitely speaks to expensive markets like Toronto and I guess it used to be Vancouver till they kind of tinkered with the real estate market and killed that there. But um, in a city like Toronto where you're seeing like home prices going up 15 or 20 percent, um, if you wait too long, then um you might not be able to afford a home anymore. I mean, in terms of Toronto, like it's hardest, like for a lot of first-time home bars, um, I think it's not realistic to buy a detached house anymore because they're so darn expensive. But um, by waiting maybe like uh, an extra year, um, you know, you might not be able to afford like uh, a middle of, of the road uh, housing option, like a townhouse. So for example, let's say that you um, could afford um, a $500,000 property and then um, you ended up waiting another year and home prices went up by uh, 10%. So that property would now be worth $550,000. And 
I don't know about you, but saving an extra $50,000 after tax doesn't really seem realistic. So basically, it means that home prices are going out faster than you can save. And um, you might be able to afford a townhouse, but if you end up waiting a couple years, you might only be able to afford a condo and then pretty soon maybe like a micro condo if house prices keep going up, real estate prices keep going up so fast. So um, while I don't think you should rush into real estate and buy before you're ready, um, it's definitely something to be aware of if you live in a city like Toronto where real estate prices are going up so quickly. So it really supports the concept of maybe buying a starter home and and not not trying to save up to buy your your final dream home that you'll stay in for the rest of your life. Exactly, you just have to kind of balance that with not moving too uh, quickly. I mean, you don't want to be moving every two to three years. Just kind of try to find a home that will suit you for the next five or ten years, and uh, you know, don't wait forever to buy the perfect mansion because uh, home prices could kind of you know uh, price you out of the market if you do that. But once you get in, then your equity is kind of moving with the market. So you're kind of keeping up with, with the the increasing price of houses, I guess. Exactly. Location is such a, such an important point. So what makes a location good or, or bad? Well, there are many factors that come into that. Um, some of the factors that make a location good is a safe neighborhood, of course, with low crime rate. Um, you also want to have a neighborhood that has good schools. Now, even if you don't have children, it's an important factor in terms of resale value because a lot of parents who will be looking at your house want um, a house that's in a good school district. So that's something to consider. Um, you also want a property that has decent transportation. So whether it's close to the subway or LRT or or bus, um, then that's definitely an important factor. Uh, if you're buying an area where um, LRT is going to be put in, that can definitely help boost your uh, resale value in the years to come. Uh, amenities are important as well. You want to be close to parks and shopping and restaurants. You don't want to be miles away from that. And if you're buying a condo, um, the view is important as well because uh, Lots of people like entertaining at their condos and they want to have a nice view, but fortunately, you can't really control that if somebody puts a new condo in front of where you're buying. Um, and some of the factors um, that make location bad are some of the undesirable things such as being close to a fire station or a noisy schoolyard or railway tracks. Um, I mean, people don't really want to be woken up at all hours of the day. Um, also, on the opposite side, high high crime rate because people aren't going to be uh, feeling safe in your neighborhood and it might make it hard to rent out to tenants, um, especially if they have kids. They don't really want to raise their kids in somewhere that's not safe and um, also a lack of pride of ownership. So, for example, if um, a neighborhood has a lot of rental properties or the homes and businesses look run down, that, then that's certainly not going to help the resale value of your property. You know, I was burned by the... Uh bad school, a neighborhood, when my first home purchase. And I, I wish somebody would have opened my eyes to that when we bought. I mean, I didn't have kids at the time, but when I went to sell that house, I remember saying to my real estate agent, hey, a house just like mine in, the same, in my same town is going for, they're listing it for a higher value. Why, why are you suggesting a, a lower listing price for mine? And it was the school. And uh, I wish I would have uh, had the insight or the knowledge about that at the time. Yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty for yeah. sure. What are some of the questions you should ask a prospective real estate agent? So some of the questions that I go through um, on my book, and I basically in my book, and basically I say, you know, treat um, like your house is the biggest, likely the biggest, uh, single biggest financial transaction of your lifetime. So um, kind of treat your uh, real estate. Um, agent search like a job interview because you want somebody who's competent and will work um, hard for you because the real estate market is uh, in certain markets like Toronto it's uh, more competitive than it's ever been so you really need um, a real estate agent a rock star real estate agent as I call them in my in my book to kind of you know compete with all the other agents out there so some of the questions that I mentioned that you should ask your real estate agent are how long have you been an active agent so you want somebody who um, knows the current market well. You don't want an agent who hasn't bought or sell, sold a house in five years' time. 
Another question is, how many homes have you listed and sold in the last year? And that kind of ties into the first question. Um, the third question is, um, will I be working directly with you? Um, and if, you'll, if you're working with a team, find out whether you'll be working with the team lead or with a more junior agent. Um, a lot of agents advertise and you think that you'll be working with the head honcho, but then when it comes time, you're assigned to a junior agent. So you may be disappointed if you're not working with the agent that you see uh, face plastered on the park bench. So it's just something to kind of keep in mind. And um, another thing, the, the fourth question to ask is, may I have references? And um, that's important because you want to basically hear how other home buyers' experiences were and sellers' experiences were with them. Um, it really helps to, uh, you know, uh, helps you make your final decision whether or not you want to go with this agent. And I would recommend interviewing um, at least two or three agents before you make your final decision. Don't just go with the first agent that you come across, uh, a family friend or somebody that you, uh, the first sign that you see uh, on somebody's uh, front lawn. Um, really take the time to do your research. You know, that's interesting with the teams of agents. Uh, I live in a smaller town and we don't see a lot of that where, you know, they, it's just a one-person show. And I, I had no idea. I, I've seen sort of in the city the bigger names advertised and I had no idea they operated sort of as a, as a mini company themselves. That's, that's quite interesting. Sean, you mentioned the concept, don't buy too much house. How do you know if you're buying too much house? So as, as I mentioned earlier, um, you don't want to end up house rich and cash poor. So generally speaking, you don't want more than 50% of your income going towards housing costs because um, you won't have any money left over to save, um, let alone have funds. So as I was mentioning earlier, if you're buying in a pricey market like Toronto, you want to keep that total debt service ratio below 42%. I would say aim to keep it even lower but um, you know you definitely don't want to spend too much on a house because um, you want to kind of diversify your money and if something were to happen to your house your roof were to start leaking or you or your furnace were to break down you want some sort of emergency savings for that if all your money is tied up in your house then um, you're going to run into financial problems and maybe have to take out take on credit card debt or payday loans and uh, it just will make your debt situation worse. So definitely leave yourself some sort of financial cushion. So you kind of did a, a very extreme thing, paying off your mortgage in such a short period of time. In an effort to not be house poor, what do you think the average person should aim for? I, I mean, three years, the shorter the better, but what do you think, do you think a 25-year mortgage is, is too long or is that normal or realistic? Well, I don't mean to. Uh, I don't mean to give the typical answer, but it all depends on your financial situation. So, while somebody like me could pay off my mortgage in three years' time, um, it may not. It's probably not practical for um, a family to do that because they have childcare costs and other costs. Like uh, they probably need a car to take their children around to uh, run errands and to take them to soccer practice and things like that. So um, it's all about kind of setting yourself a goal to pay off your mortgage sooner and seeing what is realistic for you. Um, if you're family, you probably don't want to live in the basement and live in the upstairs and you don't have to do that. Um, if you, you know, if, if you look at what I did in my book and follow maybe half the advice or even a third of it, you can cut back your expenses considerably and pay off your mortgage a lot sooner than 25 years. While you may, may not be able to pay it off in three years, maybe you could pay it off in five, 10, or 15 years. So it's all about setting yourself a realistic goal and taking the actions that you need to achieve that. Sean, do you think a fixer upper house is worth investing in? Well, fixer upper, I'm kind of a bit on the fence about that, um, and I'll tell you why. Now, a fixer upper can be a great way to buy a house in a good neighborhood at affordable price. Um, but it's important to get a home inspection so you, that you know what you're getting into. Um, something that I actually did when I was buying a house is that um, I knew the house needed some work. I saw that the chimney was leaning, so I went ahead and got estimates from a couple contractors to see how much money it would cost to fix the chimney, and it ended up costing um, a couple thousand dollars, but at least I wasn't blindly going in not knowing how much money that it would cost. So. Um, the biggest thing with fixer uppers is I would say don't t don't take on too much um, 
renovations because um, you don't want to end up being in over your head, especially if you're a first-time home buyer who's never uh, known what it's like to own a home. So uh, I would say look for a home with mostly cosmetic upgrades, um, whether it's, uh, you know, fixing the kitchen or giving it a, the house a new paint job and avoid anything major like any structural issues. Like I went into a house where everything was leaning, um, even the kitchen cabinets were leaning and crooked. So I definitely avoided that house like the plague. So just, you know, don't uh, take on too much and avoid like houses that are money pits kind of uh, like that Tom Hanks uh, movie. In your book, you say there's more to a mortgage than just the rate. What are some other things to take into consideration? A lot of people, when they go shopping for a mortgage, all they care about is finding the lowest mortgage rate, but that's not the only thing that you should shop for a mortgage based on. Other things that you should consider are mortgage penalties, prepayments, and portability. Now, mortgage penalties are a big thing because about 70% of people break their mortgage um, when they sign up for a five-year fixed rate mortgage. And if you're signing up for one of the big banks, the mortgage penalties can end up being quite hefty. I've heard people paying mortgage penalties of over $10,000. And um, I mean, people don't want to break their mortgage necessarily. It might be because they're getting a divorce or they lose their job. So to have um, a mortgage penalty of over $10,000 on top of that um, is definitely not a fun experience. And when people are shopping for mortgages, they're not really thinking about breaking their mortgage, but it's important to have that information ahead of time because you don't know, you don't have a crystal ball and you don't know what's going to happen in the future. So um, it's important to, you know, think about that and um, perhaps getting perhaps consider getting a mortgage with um, a non-bank lender like First National because um, they generally have lower mortgage penalties than the big banks. So, because um, the big banks base their mortgage penalties um, on their posted rate as opposed to their discount rate. So let's say the big bank, let's say a bank is like has a posted rate of 4.5% for the five-year fixed rate mortgage, but you end up signing up for a mortgage at 3%, well, they're going to base the mortgage penalty um, on the 4.5%, even though you have 3% if you end up um, breaking it. So that that's why the mortgage penalty can end up being $10,000 or more. Um, and also prepayment privileges, if you um, want to be mortgage-free, they're definitely important to have because they let, like most uh, closed mortgages, offer some sort of prepayments, whether it's increasing your payments, um, allowing you to make lump sum payments, or even doubling up your payments. So if your goal is to pay off your mortgage as soon as possible, prepayments um, are an important feature to have. And um, different lenders have different prepayments. Like they might allow you to prepay 15% of your mortgage balance as a lump sum, and other lenders might allow you to pay 20%. So just kind of pay attention to those things if you want to pay off your mortgage sooner. And um, regarding penalties, if your mortgage is portable, it means if you sell your house and you want to move to a new house, you can basically bring your mortgage with you and not have to pay that $10,000 mortgage penalty. So um, portability is definitely a great feature to have and something that you should look for when you're getting a mortgage. So you mentioned that you lived in the basement of your home while you rented out the upstairs. Can you share one of your adventures of being a landlord with us? Sure. Well, I'd like to say that um, being a landlord was easy uh, over the last uh, few years. Um, I have ran into some issues with tenants. So, for example, my second set of tenants, um, they actually got divorced while they were living at my house. So there were a lot of uh, yelling uh there's a lot of yelling and uh, I remember waking up at 6 a.m. on a Saturday to them yelling. So that definitely wasn't a fun experience. And I guess when I kind of uh, took in those tenants, um, I kind of, I guess, felt a bit bad for them and wanted to give them a chance. But it ended up uh, coming back to bite me in the end. So that kind of speaks to an issue that I talk about in my book. And it's um, the importance of doing a good job of screening your tenants because as I mentioned in my book, all it takes is one bad tenant to ruin your cash flow for your rental property. So what I recommend is that you should take the time to speak with your tenants on the phone. Um, and then if everything goes well on the phone conversation, meet in person. And um, if they're interested in the property, you can have them fill in a rental application and also do a credit check and speak with references. And don't just speak with their current landlord because 
they might not be model tenants and the landlord might just say want to get rid of them and say that they're great tenants to do that. Um, and as I mentioned, it's easier to screen out bad tenants than it is to evict tenants once they're in your house. So it's really important to do your homework before you let them live in your house. As a, as a tenant myself, I, I have great admiration for you and any other landlord who does take that on because it, it is quite a responsibility and an undertaking. Exactly. I mean, if uh, the pipe starts leaking at 3 a.m., then you have to be on call, ready to deal with it. So um, while there's plenty of great things about being a landlord, like um, steady cash flow, you know, it all takes is one bad tenant to kind of ruin the whole situation and turn it into a nightmare. Oh, definitely. Sean, in your book, you do mention the concept of a side hustle. Can you share with our listeners some of your side hustle ideas? Sure. So, um, I basically, I had all these side hustles because um, I was trying to protect myself as a single homeowner. So um, for a lot of people, 100% of their income comes from their full-time job. While that's fine and dandy, if you were lose, to lose your full-time job, then you would have no income at all coming in. So my side hustles were basically a way of self-insuring myself if I were ever to lose my full-time job. So some of the things that I did was I worked part-time um, at a supermarket. I was also a financial journalist and I was a landlord. So that's some of the things that I do. But actually in the appendix of my book, um, I talk about some of the other side hustle ideas that um, people can do. So a popular idea is um, Airbnb. So for example, if you own a property and you're going away on vacation for a week, you can rent your property out on Airbnb and actually pay for you know, most of your vacation by doing that. So I find that's a great way. And um, also, if you're kind of a first time home buyer and a bit cash strapped, um, something that if your parents are willing to do this is you could kind of spend the weekend at their house. And if you're in a desirable location, you could rent out your um, house for the weekend um, and make a bunch of extra money doing that. Um, so um, I find that's a great way to make money. And um, the sharing economy has made it easier than ever to make money these days. Um, people are opening up home restaurants. Uh, there's um, there's places, there's our um, services like Feastly and Eat With. And there's also um, part of the sharing economy, there's um, a service where you can hire people to do errands or you can offer to do errands. It's called Ask for Tasks. So there's more ways than ever to make money these days. Just basically look at a skill that you have, whether it's web design, writing, or photography, and then you can kind of turn that into a business and uh, have your own side hustle. Sean, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self that would really help our younger listeners? So I would say the biggest thing is to set yourself goals and take advantage of um, the fact that you're young and you have time on your side. So um, Einstein once said that um, compound interest is the most powerful force on earth. So basically get in the habit of regularly saving, whether you're saving towards the down payment of a house or retirement and automate your savings. Because if you're putting away $200 a month, um, it may not seem like a lot, but the at the end of the day, um, when it comes time to retire or buy your house, you'll have a whack of money then. So just kind of getting in that um, habit of savings uh, is a great thing to have. Is there anything that you wish you would have done at 20 years old or do you look back and, and, and really have no regrets? Well, to be honest, I wish I had have uh, purchased a house sooner, but I guess I'm kind of splitting hairs. But, um, you know, um, I would say that I, I wish that I had gotten a part-time job sooner because I only got a part-time job at 19 years old. If I um, was really smart, I probably would have gotten a job at 14 or 15. But, you know... Um, I think I'm doing okay now, but, um, you know, um, that's just uh, one thing that I can think of. Sean, with everything that you're doing and you sound like you're, you're busy and doing so much, what do you plan for the future? Well, I'm currently working, um, a full-time job, as I mentioned, as a senior pension analyst, um, also working as a financial journalist and something else that I've recently got into, as it was mentioned earlier, is money coaching. So I'm looking to uh, actually help other people burn their mortgages. So I'm calling myself a mortgage burning expert. 
And I realized a mortgage is a long-term thing. So what I'm doing is kind of helping people set goals with their mortgages and also buying a home and kind of celebrating different milestones. So, you know, whether it's paying off $5,000 of your mortgage or it's saving that down payment and, and finally getting into buying a house, um, that's what I'm really focusing on because I, I find a lot of people just are generally general money coaches. So I really want to help people with the single biggest purchase of their lifetime, their house, because it seems to me there's not a lot of financial literacy out there. And it's kind of, you learn about some of these things with home ownership the hard way. So I kind of want to help give people that knowledge so they can make a smart spending decision with their money. Um, and eventually I'd like to perhaps turn all this side hustle into a full-time job. But, um, you know, um, I'm perfectly content working my day job right now. Now, do you think not having the burden of a mortgage t t payment to be making, has it changed your perception of the jobs you're looking for? You're, not, you're no longer trying to find a job to uh, support uh, a more expensive lifestyle. You, you now, do you feel you have options to maybe pursue occupations that you're more engaged with and, and get more gratification from? Exactly, because I was able to pay off my mortgage and achieve financial freedom. I can... Uh, take a job that I truly enjoy and find rewarding. I, I'm not just necessarily doing it just for the money to pay off my mortgage. So what I talk about in my book is when you have financial freedom, it really gives you choices. Uh, you don't have to stay at that job that you hate just because you have some big mortgage and you have mortgage payments to make. You can make choices and maybe you can take a job that, job that you enjoy more for $5,000 less a, a year and you know you spend so much time at work that um, I really think that it's worth it from a, ha a happiness standpoint. So um, financial freedom kind of opens up the doors and uh, you know lets you uh, try new opportunities. Now if that's not inspiration to burn your mortgage, I don't know what is. Oh definitely. Sean, where can our listeners get your book? So my book will be available for sale on uh, Amazon and, and at all major bookstores March 1st, 2017. It's actually available on Amazon for pre-order right now. And how can our listeners connect with you? They can visit my website. Uh, it's called SeanCooperWriter.com. That's S-E-A-N-C-O-O-P-E-R Writer. Um, dot com and also they can connect with me on Facebook um, my name on there is Sean Cooper writer and on Twitter at Sean Cooper right um, and also they can email me and it's Sean Cooper writer at gmail.com and one last thing our podcast is called simple money solutions can you give our listeners one takeaway preferably simple that would help them achieve mortgage freedom sure so the biggest takeaway I would say is don't make your mortgage a life sentence by buying too much house. Buy a home that you can truly afford and burn your mortgage that much sooner. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Sean. You have definitely provided our listeners with so many incredible takeaways. Great. It was my pleasure. Make sure to get your hands on a copy of Sean's book, Burn Your Mortgage, The Simple, Powerful Path to Financial Freedom for Canadians. And for one lucky listener, we will be giving away a copy of Sean's book. For your chance to enter our giveaway, email us at livelifesimple365 at gmail.com, tweet us at sms underscore podcast, or post on our Facebook page, Live Life Simple, the hashtag or phrase, burn your mortgage giveaway. We'll have all those details of Sean Cooper's book's giveaway on our website as well that you can check out. And that is it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Please be check out, check out the show notes at livelifesimple.ca where we'll have all of Sean's social media, website, and email links along with where to find his book, Burn Your Mortgage, The Simple, Powerful Path to Financial Freedom for Canadians, which we highly recommend reading. And until next week, keep it simple. <laughs>